La Rui Productions presents The Great Unlearning, a courageous memoir about one woman's bold journey to mend her broken past. Read for you by me, the author, Mary La. In the last episode, you followed me to the beginning of my high school years where I shared two stories, On Guard and Learning to Pretend about how a beautiful day at the beach turned into a disastrous mindset that induced a deep sense of shame that fueled an anxiety and panic disorder that would nearly flatten me a few years down the road. In today's episode, I will read the next two stories in the book, Gullible Girl and Girls Like Me. Here is Gullible Girl. Blossoming into looking decent in a bikini, the surfer crowd took me in for a summer. While I totally fit the part, with my stringy platinum blonde hair covering most of my face, I didn't like surfing, and wetsuits were bulky and unattractive, but I went to their beach parties anyway. With bonfires and free-flowing kegs of beer, Some of the awkward edges came off my shy and distorted 15-year-old self-image, which always seemed to chum around with me like a quiet, evil twin. One day, as I was tending to a hangover by getting a tan at a popular surfing spot, a man of about 40 approached me with an offer to be a bikini model in a magazine. Super tan, with weathered skin, his unruly mane of coarse brown hair had been bleached blonde by salt water and sun. Ecstatic at the thought he might find me attractive enough to photograph, caused me to think, maybe I'd been wrong about how I saw myself. The next day, I got a ride five miles up the coast to meet the photographer at his home for a photo shoot with my ride promising to pick me up two hours later. Excited about being chosen to be photographed for a magazine, I never thought to ask what magazine he was shooting for or if he was going to pay me. The photographer greeted me at the door, offered me some champagne and blew smoke in my face, which I had heard was a sexy gesture, so I felt desired. When he fiddled with his camera out by the pool, I shuffled into his bathroom with my bag of clothes, makeup, and a flute of the sweet bubbly goodness I'd never had before. Looking like I belonged in a rock band with lots of makeup and big ratty hair, I confidently headed out to the pool wearing an amber-beaded, crocheted string bikini bottom and matching halter top. He clicked away while telling me how pretty I was. So feeling relaxed and like a supermodel, I puckered my lips and flung my long, puffy, blonde hair around like I've seen women do in magazines. Then, after giving me more champagne, he had me lay on my side on a red velvet chase lounge next to a palm tree. When he told me to untie my bikini bottom, and let the beaded strings hang over my hip. Woozy from the champagne, I didn't hesitate. 
instructing me to open up my bikini bottom and touch myself? I peeked at him through my big hair with a puzzled look, relaying the message that I didn't understand. Without taking the camera from his face, he raised his voice and said, Put your fingers on your pussy. I obeyed him and quickly put my fingers between my open legs, not able to understand why he kept taking pictures even though I had grown tense and now had a bewildered look on my face. When he then moaned, Oh yeah, baby, rub it. I thought, rub what? Increasingly uncomfortable, I quickly tied my bikini bottom back up and saw his hand moving fast down into the crotch of his pants. Confused about what he was doing, I wondered if he had a wedgie he was trying to fix. He appeared distracted by what was happening in his pants, so I stood up abruptly, told him I had to go. I'd never seen an erect penis before, and while I'd caught glimpses of my brother's little limp wieners, I'd never seen an adult man's in this condition. As I hurried into the house to get my things from the bathroom, he came in after me, so I jumped into the shower and closed the frosted door. A blurry version of his naked body appeared in the doorway of the bathroom as he continued to stroke himself while breathlessly promising he wouldn't hurt me if I came out of the shower and laid down on his bed. Not knowing what to say or do to defend myself against this man, I felt trapped and started panicking and crying just as he shouted to God like he was in pain. He finally stopped moving, slumped up against the bathroom wall for a few seconds then slowly walked out of the bathroom. After quickly getting dressed, I ran out of the house and down the hill of his street to wait for my ride, who was due to arrive at any moment. Did I learn anything from that experience? Not really. I went on with my boundaryless life, setting myself up regularly for the potential of disaster. Here is Girls Like Me. The security guard, firmly tapping my right foot with a scolding shame on you, probably wanted to make sure I was conscious enough to know how she felt about my having just puked all over myself. I was sprawled out on the concrete floor at my first rock concert somewhere in Los Angeles after having spent much of the show under the stadium stairs, slumped up against a cinder block wall, nearly unconscious, drenched in vomit. This sad situation began in the parking lot before the show when I had been offered a thermos of Tom Collins. My friends cheering me on as I guzzled the whole thing. It had been mostly gin. And as I stumbled into the stadium where Ted Nugent was to perform, my stomach violently churned while the venue spun. I tried to find a bathroom, but only got as far as hitting the wall next to its entrance, where I peed my pants, slid down onto my butt, and went in and out of consciousness. When the memory of this senseless experience finally found its way to my adult mind, I wondered, why did I ever want to drink alcohol again? But this was only the beginning of the journey of attempting to numb my pain. Although I don't have many memories of being a high school student that fall, 
I remember snorting heroin off the hood of a root beer brown Carmagia in a parking lot and doing bong hits of marijuana laced with PCP, whatever that was. Every weekend, I'd go to parties, naively accepting any drug or alcoholic drink that was offered. The feeling of not being in control was worth the feeling of being perceived as brave and accepted in a group. Any group. I'd do anything to be included. Shortly after I got my driver's license, I tripped on LSD while driving to Inglewood to see an Eagles concert at the Forum. My father's old Lincoln miraculously had enough gas in it to get me and three of my stoned friends there and back without him knowing it. But when I rolled in at 2 a.m., seeing the light on in the kitchen and not wanting to get caught coming into the house high or discovered sleeping in my dad's car in the driveway, I chose to sleep in a filthy, unlocked station wagon that was parked down the street. I never once considered what could have happened if someone hopped in that grimy junker of a car and sped off to some unsafe destination. On another occasion, a biker gang scooped me up for a risky and exhilarating week after I accepted a ride home from the beach from a 30-year-old bad boy on a Harley. Closing my eyes on the back of his hog, I relished long, glorious hits of the woody smell of his leather jacket and the motor oil on his skin as we leaned into the turns of the windy roads in the coastal hills. Although I liked it when his loud and obnoxious friends called me puppy, probably because I was by far the youngest of the bunch. When I refused to have sex with anybody, I was out. My virginity was almost lost at a party in a dilapidated house in the suburbs of Los Angeles after snorting lines of cocaine on the polished cross-section of a black rock with a bunch of dope heads. I have no memory of how I got to this party or when I came home, Never having been missed by my family meant it was easy to be gone. Around 1 a.m., I found myself in a bedroom with an older guy named Addison, who had to be at least 25. We were naked in his twin bed, which felt like it was covered in a combination of sand and cracker crumbs. Band on the rung by wings was stuck repeating on his record player and his roommate was unconscious in a beanbag chair in the corner, most likely nearly overdosing from all the pills that were flying around that night. Addison was laying on top of me, jabbing my inner thigh with his stiff penis as his whiskery chin rubbed the skin nearly raw on my forehead. His long, stinky brown hair tickled my cheeks and constantly found its way into my mouth. Tense and motionless, I lay there with my hands covering my face until he stopped poking my leg, and he asked if I was a virgin. When I squeaked out an embarrassing affirmative, he replied, Save it for someone who loves you, then rolled off me and fell fast asleep. Feeling harshly rejected, I thought he didn't like me enough to have sex with me. 
Although 16 at the time, I really had no idea what love was and thought it might be sex, yet wasn't even sure what happened during sex. Earlier that year, my mother had nonchalantly explained, a man will place his penis in your vagina, then mumbled something about a climax, followed by, I could really use a good fuck. I commiserated with a me too, yet didn't really know what I was concurring with. She took me to a bar the following weekend and offered me pointers like, always get to know your bartender and tip well. And when you are out on a date, order a big salad so you can take the entree home with you for lunch the next day. Determined to be loved, I had sex, or maybe a fuck, for the first time with a boy named Jed a couple of weeks later. I was his first, too. While it wasn't a beautiful and important moment, and we weren't in love, we were in the same place at the right time. But having sex hadn't felt all that great, and I didn't understand why it was such a big deal since it was over in about a minute. I did learn, however, that all I had to do was lay there with my legs open and bingo, I was worth something. I also learned the power of being sexy and concluded sex wasn't for pleasure, it was for pleasing. My sexuality seemed to be the only thing of value because of the attention boys gave me if I behaved provocatively. And although I didn't always follow through, it sure felt good to be desired, even temporarily. I was like a heat-seeking missile looking for attention with a growing confidence I could assume whatever shape was needed in order to fit in. I was learning how to overcompensate and manipulate people into liking me, a skill that would serve me and backfire too. One of my girlfriends had wiggled herself in as a trophy girl at the local speedway, so I jumped on the same opportunity when it came my way. My job was to wear something sexy, ride side saddle on the back of a motorcycle around the track, hop off seductively, then present the winner with a trophy and a kiss on the lips after the win was announced over the loudspeakers. With the moment of that kiss, eliciting cameras flashing, loud cheers and whistles in my direction, I was swallowed whole with the attention, believing I had something to do with the audience's excited response. How gullible I was back then. On this exciting evening, I was invited to join the Speedway winner and his crew in a trailer after the press was finished taking pictures. Piled around a table with five boys that smelled of burning rubber and gasoline, I proceeded to get drunk on tequila. After reaching under the winner's shirt and unzipping his pants, I stroked his penis, something I had noticed boys doing to themselves. Having never done this before, I felt brave, daring, and quite innocent in doing so. Grabbing my wrist... The aroused winner tried to take me into the back of the trailer where he slept, 
but when I refused, he said something about having blue balls, called me a prick tease, and proceeded to kick me out. A few weeks later, when I overheard another boy at a party also refer to me as a prick tease, I still wasn't sure of its true meaning, but it didn't seem to matter at the moment because I was having fun. In fact, I felt a sense of satisfaction in learning there was a running bet between three boys who would get me in the sack first. I was determined not to give any of them the pleasure of winning this bet, and it seemed to be nothing more than a fun game until it turned disastrous. These same boys may all have had sex with me a week later at a party when I took what I thought was a quaalude, but was probably a roofie, a mistake that was built to last. I must have been unconscious for about six hours, because the last thing I remembered was arriving at the party at 9 p.m., and taking a thick white pill with a whiskey and 7-Up. Upon waking at 3 a.m., I found myself lying naked on my back in wet grass, feet dangling in the below-ground hot tub. Feeling nearly paralyzed and quite disoriented, as waves of chlorinated water splashed up onto my thighs, what happened next has haunted me for my entire life. A boy I didn't recognize was standing in the hot tub, holding my legs open and thrusting inside of me. He pulled out of me as soon as he saw me open my eyes with a look of total shock and panic as I lay there unable to move. He jumped out of the tub and ran for the street while wrapping a beach towel around his waist. I haven't shared what happened to me that night with anyone until now. And though I never found out how many boys took advantage of me, I always felt like I deserved what happened. The humiliation of this tragedy, which propelled me further into a self-loathing coma, would take a couple of decades to emerge from. And while my shame wasn't overt, It always felt as heavy as a soaking wet wool coat I could never take off. Sadly, within a month, I conjured up an idiotic plan with the hope of wiping my humiliated slate clean. I would use my first paycheck from my first job to throw a keg party with a live band at my house. The entrance fee was $1 per kid, but I have no memory of where the kegs came from or where I found a band. My family had a trip to Knott's Berry Farm in Los Angeles planned for a weekend, and I lied about having to work. The reality, however, was that a couple of weeks into my job as a cashier at Lumber City, I had been fired when $40 was discovered missing from my register. I hadn't taken it but being perceived as a bad person and punished for a crime I didn't commit was a hard pill to swallow. The keg party got out of control fast, so at about 11 p.m. I decided to call the police to break it up. When a couple of officers walked into the house, nearly 100 high school kids ran out into the yard at once like scattering cockroaches. With a tidal wave of destruction awaiting me in the morning, 
I had to spend my second and last paycheck and the next 48 hours shampooing carpets, cleaning up vomit and piss from the bathrooms, and repainting. The effort, however, was worth the feeling of redemption and of being perceived as cool. I hadn't been called a prick tease even once. I started dating a scruffy boy I'd met at the party named Brian, who would take Toad, his scruffy pet goat, on a leash just about everywhere he went. It was nice to have a real boyfriend, and Toad acted like a dog. We had been dating for a couple of weeks when my father found me in bed with him, and in my father's bed of all places, having fallen asleep after having sex. What the heck had I been thinking? As my father roared into his bedroom with a 12-inch butcher knife raised over his head, shouting, You better not be bawling my daughter. He swung the knife at Brian, who quickly darted out of the house, naked, pants in hand. Brian took off in his rose-colored Volkswagen van with Toad in the back, never to be seen again. After my father shamed me for about 20 minutes, he never spoke about the incident again. I no longer recognized myself and surrendered to the exhaustion which resulted from manipulating boys into liking me and overcompensating in order to be included. If I had known there were kind and considerate boys out there, I may have held out for one, but I didn't even know they existed I'd never met any and only knew boys who took advantage of girls. I vowed to take a break from boys and parties. But that decision didn't last long. If we aren't taught about boundaries by our adult role models, how do we learn them? In my case, the long, hard way. I didn't have rules or limits in relationships and suffered the consequences. It took me freaking decades before I even knew what a boundary was. Some people have boundaries that are super rigid, like keeping people at a distance to avoid rejection. I was living on the opposite end of the boundary spectrum by having difficulties saying no to avoid rejection. Any resemblance of my self-esteem was dependent on the opinion of others, and I accepted abuse and disrespect. Gosh, it's amazing how much suffering we find acceptable until we learn otherwise. Since my need for human connection and affection as a child wasn't met by my mother, of course I searched for those basic human needs and accepted them in any form presented to me. When I did what someone wanted me to do, I got some form of attention in return. Of course I did whatever it took to get attention. I spent decades feeling shame and guilt for my behavior as a teenager, but now I let go of that shame and guilt by replacing it with a deep sense of compassion for that lost girl who was just desperately seeking love. She is still with me, and I love on her 
every day. If you'd like to see the self-portraits I created to accompany the stories I read today, you will find them on my blog at mary-law.com. Or better yet, while you are on my website, by The Great Unlearning, there are over 50 surreal self-portraits and stories in there. Visit mary-la.com. If you purchase a book via my website, I'll send you an autographed copy while they last, or you can buy it on Amazon. Now it's time for a reader question. Rhonda from Ohio asks, How has your work as a hospice nurse inspired your creation of The Great Unlearning? Oh, good question, Rhonda. As a hospice nurse, I visited hundreds, if not thousands, of dying people and their families over the last 15 years. And here is a common thread between many of them. When people receive a terminal diagnosis, it's like a giant beam of light comes down from the heavens and shines on relationships that need healing. Not just relationships with other people, but also the dying person's relationship with themselves. During this time of transition, there is little room for what is not true. I've witnessed so many dying people in a rush to make amends with their past. I wasn't dying. I didn't have to rush. So I let the lessons filter in over the years. I'm a better person for spending time with the dying, and you will learn more about that when I read Enduring Love to You, my book about hospice, after I finish reading The Great Unlearning. So, Rhonda, my work in hospice has given me permission to be as raw and vulnerable as possible while writing my stories and creating my art. It was scary at times, like in the story I will read in my very next podcast, but worth it because I know that some women will be able to relate to what happened to me and maybe receive the same gifts my suffering ultimately provided me and the eventual beautiful outcome that found me at peace. If you have a question or comment about a story or my art, please email me at mary at mary-law.com. There is a good chance I'll mention your comment or address your question in a future podcast. My website and email address are also in the show notes. And I have a free gift for you. By signing up for my engaging newsletter with inspiring new content, information on upcoming events and future projects, you will receive the audio version of my book of poetry, Fear Means Go, read by me. I also play classical guitar on this recording as I did for today's podcast. In the next episode, I will read the next story in the book, Go Ask Your Mother, an excruciating story about a brutal experience that convinced me the world was unsafe and I was unworthy of any relationship. This is Mary La. Thanks for listening. <laughs>